welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 233, and we're talking about scouting for mule deer with our good buddy, Jason Wright. If you missed the previous episode in number 232, Steve and I talked about this new series, How to Hunt Mule Deer. We gave our introduction, compared some of the differences between hunting elk and hunting mule deer, and more. So if you didn't catch that, maybe go back and get that intro. In this episode, as I said, we're speaking specifically about scouting. So we cover e-scouting as well as some boots on the ground scouting tactics as well. But Jason is a friend of ours that is a mule deer fanatic, has been incredibly successful, and we wanted to pick his brain on how he identifies mule deer country, what he looks for, how he's using tools like Google Earth, GoHunt, Onyx, and more, and ultimately how his e-scouting turns into boots on the ground, scouting, locating of deer, and then hunting for bucks. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any questions for us, be it this podcast series on mule deer or any other topic, go ahead and send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. All right, let's get into this conversation with Jason Wright on scouting for mule deer. Jason, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. Absolutely glad to be here. Um, it's been a while. We had you back on the podcast and get this episode number three. <laughs> <laughs> Old school. <laughs> yeah, we went back to the archives. And we actually talked uh, in episode three about scouting for success with Mule Deer. So here we are again. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And it was funny though. I listened uh, briefly, listened back for the little bit I could tolerate listening to myself in episode three um, to hear about that. And even though we said it was all about scouting, we kind of dove off on a bunch of rabbit trails. So we'll try our best. At least I'll try my best to keep it on scouting this time. Because uh, in that first episode, I was all over the place with you. But yeah, as you know, uh, this is part of a series we're doing just on mule deer hunting, and obviously trying to bring some information to guys that have experience, but at the same time, there's a lot of folks out there who are new to mule deer hunting. Maybe they're primarily an elk hunter, and so we're trying to kind of cover the basics as well. So let's zone in specifically on scouting, and this is something that, uh, Steve, you can attest to this knowing Jason for quite a few years, that he's pretty good at locating bucks, you'd say. That's pretty, uh, I'd like to say you just have a, he has a knack for it. Yeah, cool. Picks, well, picks a yeah. spot on the map, and there's deer there. <laughs> With a Not little hard work in between. Yeah, you know, he earns it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and this one, let's let's dig in first on, before we get boots on the ground, just kind of setting up scenarios, Jason, of how you use e-scouting resources. So thinking of, you know, resources such as Google Earth, Onyx Maps, um, anything related to that. Um, that's where we want to spend the bulk of the time today. So um, let's just start with that. Do you, What do you use... In terms of resources, do you use both Google Earth and Onyx? Do you use anything else um, before you're actually putting boots on the ground to kind of try and identify some country that you think you would want to check out and that you think looks like uh, good deer country? Um, yeah, the bulk of it's uh, Google Earth. Um, assuming that I've narrowed down uh, an area or a unit I want to go, there's other sites I'll use to help 
narrow that down, like go hunt or, or the fishing game websites for each state. Um, but once, once you decide on an area that you're going to go, it, it's pretty much all Google earth for me. I'll, I'll dabble in Onyx a little bit, but I just get so much more out of Google earth. So that's kind of, that's the bulk of it. Um, and you can expand Google earth to so many different levels as far as adding in layers and all sorts of things. So we can, I'm sure jump into that if you want. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, a lot of guys might fire up Google Earth and maybe haven't spent a bunch of time into it. And so they fire it up and they see a satellite view. But in terms of features, things you can do with it, like help us understand what layers you're adding, overlays, any other data sources. And yeah, let's dive into how you actually use Google Earth. Sure. Uh, well, the first thing I like to do is um, get the unit boundaries in there. Um, occasionally I'll get bored and I'll go scout colorado high country for no reason because i don't have a tag there but it's just they have so much of it but i don't even know what unit i'm in half the time so it's you really need to rein that in and kind of know your boundaries um because if you've ever read the fishing game regulations and try to follow their description of you know this highway to this drainage up this ridge i mean it's just you're way better off getting your your unit boundaries um overlaid onto google earth and there's a number of different ways you can do that but um, I actually just found the other day, um, Hunting Fool has a nice little link on their site for downloadable Google Maps and uh, or Google um, links, and you're basically looking for a KML file or a KMZ file and whatever management unit you want. So um, I have Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado all on my Google Earth so that I know which unit I'm working with. So that's a, a good starting point. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's. I know that that information's out there, but having a resource, as you mentioned, to centralize that's helpful because a lot of times I've looked and it's been buried pretty far deep in terms of actually finding those files to add to it. And I remember, shoot, in the early days trying to come up with ways to overlay topo images on top of satellites before KML files and KMZ were as prevalent as they are. So it's uh, certainly nice just to have those as plugins these days. For sure, it, like when my uh, one of my computers went down, I had an IT guy recover all the Google Earth place marks because I had like property boundaries drawn on on an area. I had BLM versus private, and it, it just was it got really intense with the amount of custom layers I put on there, just so I knew where the hell I was at on when I was flying around Google Earth. <laughs> but so yeah, unit um, unit boundaries, and then the next thing I'd want to do is. Um, um, Idaho has a great uh, site called uh, trails.idaho.gov, and you can import Jeep trails, motorcycle trails, seasonal trail, any kind of trail that exists in Idaho. You can download from that site as a KML file, or I think it's KML, and then put it on your Google Earth, and it'll kind of overwhelm you because there's so many of them. So you'll have to get familiar with the left side of your Google Google Earth screen. Um, there's a little box called Places, and each trail you put on there has a, a little checkbox next to it where you can toggle it and hide it because you'll just you'll have so many trails you don't even know where you're at so you can go back through and and delete half of them or, or toggle them to where they're not displayed and it helps a lot so boundaries um trails i assume you're looking at roads just in general just to kind of try to identify areas that are less traveled more roadless than not are you do you go as far as like shading out roads or kind of creating boundaries to identify these pockets where, you know, there's basically theoretically less pressure, you know, at least in terms of roads and established trails. 
Sure. Yeah. That's, that's really the whole goal of that. Um, like trails.idaho.gov is trying to figure out little holes in the grid where there's not access points. Um, looking for any spot where there's no motorized, no motorcycle access or, or even like if you can find a spot that's completely off trail where you're bushwhacking, um, obviously that's going to guarantee there's less people in there. And that's what we're looking for when it comes to finding, you know, old mature deer is a place where they can survive and grow old. Talk a little bit about the perspective tools. Um, and I think I've, you've even mentioned in the past, like some of the things you've done with obviously setting perspective, but then isn't there something to do with like sun and shading that you use there to see kind of how light would move through country? Yeah. One, one thing real quick that this is something that it blows me away that no one or not no one, but that it's not known when you're navigating Google earth in the upper right hand corner, there's two little sphere looking things. And one is to move around the map and the other one is to adjust your, your perspective. Um, whenever I have someone looking over my shoulder and I start moving the screen around all crazy and they always go whoa how are you doing that so i'm sure half of our half the people listening are familiar with google earth and they use that top sphere to you know reposition their perspective up and down if you have a roller wheel on your mouse and you just click down on the roller wheel and then then hold it down and drag your mouse around it completely changes your perspective and it just everyone whenever I show that to them, it blows their mind. Like, oh my god! And it just makes things so much easier. So, if you don't know that function, try playing around with your roller wheel. It'll uh, change the way you use Google Earth. But uh, on the perspective thing, on the 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 sunlight, um, I've definitely used that for for the most part. I usually have a decent feel for north, south, east, west. But just when you think you have it whooped. Um, and you have an area that you want to, or a glassing point that you want to glass from for the day, um, turn on that that sunlight tool and just have the sun come up and see where the shadows are cast and see where which parts of the hill get sunlight first. And it might give you like a a plan for the day of how you want to how you want to glass the hillside. You obviously, the places that get sun first, the deer are gonna if they're out feeding first thing, they're gonna hit the timber pretty quick. Um, so you want to glass those places first and the more shadowed areas that don't get sun till later, you can kind of glass those secondary and it kind of gives you a, a good plan for the day um, as far as how you want to attack it from when you do get boots on the ground. Another function that I use all the time is the historical imagery. Um, depending on when Google's pretty good about um picking summertime images where you have a clear view of of what you're looking at but every now and then you'll get into to an area that uh, is all covered in snow and you can click on the historical imagery and and scroll back through all the images back to the 1980s when they first had these horrific images on there um and then you, you get a better idea of the lay of the land minus the snow and you know seasonal conditions anything else come to mind in terms of google earth of just simple even functions of the application, not so much deer specific stuff, but that guys might overlook or not know about, or again, other moments where you've had a guy go, wait, how did you do that? Anything else like that come to mind? Um, we use uh, thumbtacks all the time to, or even the path function to circle an area um, and, you know, send it to a hunting buddy. Like Steve sent me numerous places and I've, I've sent him places we should check out and they can obviously look at it on their Google earth and, 
see if they find something that you didn't notice. Um, and, you know, it's just a great way to share information with your hunting buddies. Obviously, you don't want to share it with really anybody else, but <laughs> your hunting buddies, it's safe. Yeah. And you're also just sharing those as like KML or KMZ files. Yeah. So I just, I'll put a thumbtack on there and then I right click on the thumbtack and scroll down to email and it just attaches the, uh, the KMZ file. And then when Steve opens it up on his machine, it'll just put it on his Googler so we can kind of share uh, thumbtacks. Um, and you can also, you know, I, I'll draw, we'll draw paths on there and, and measure distances and see how far it's going to be and elevation gain to get into an area. So you kind of have an idea. It's really easy to look at Google Earth and go, oh, I can hike here or there. And then you realize that the country is way <laughs> bigger than you thought it was. I think Steve can attest to that. <laughs> yeah. My my Google Earth eyes aren't quite uh, what the ground, like how, what actually lines up on when you're there in person. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's actually, I'm glad you mentioned that, Jason. Just another simple thing I'm sure a lot of guys know, but some might not, is right-clicking on a path or it's like, say you draw a path. Um, create your own path, you can right-click on that. And I believe the menu item says show elevation profile, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yep. But that's actually going to show you, obviously, elevation loss and gain over the distance of that path, whatever that distance might be. And it's pretty cool because you can kind of scroll across this elevation profile and you can basically see on the map um, moving along that path or moving along that trail. So that, that is, uh, something I'm glad you mentioned there just cause it's kind of tucked in that little right click menu, um, that guys might not be aware of. Yeah. And then the other thing is the places menu on the left-hand side, it took me longer than I'm proud to admit, um, a while to, to learn that I could toggle, uh, places on and off. Cause if you looked at my Google earth, you'd see, you know, almost every place I've ever scouted, place I've killed animals, sheds, fish, and everything's on there. It's like the most sacred thing that I, you know, <laughs> and if I had a friend come over, like, that you didn't want to share everything with that friend, and you want to show them a spot on Google, and you pull up Google Earth, and it shows this cluster of thumbtacks in an area, you obviously don't want someone to see that. So you can go through to your places and toggle a bunch of those so it just doesn't show up on your map. And because for a while, I would just delete them. And then I'd put them back on later so that I wouldn't have someone seeing where the where all my little honey holes were, you know. So that's that's key. Learn that little places uh, menu on the left hand side so you can remove your all your little sweet spots off your Google Earth if you're t showing someone else. Right. How do you organize all that? Do you create folders or using different colors? Like as you mentioned, you have years worth of data. You have preseason stuff, in-season stuff, you have elk sheds versus mule deer country. So like, how are you making sense of all this years of data and kind of organizing that? I, I wish I had some elaborate system. It's <laughs> literally just, I put a thumbtack where I, and I label it, you know, the date and what happened there. And then if I want to find, as if I'd ever forget where that event happened, um, I, I can use the search, the search bar at the top to find it if I needed to. So it's kind of like a a Gmail inbox. I don't build folders or labels. I just search, you know, search for something. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's interesting. I think a lot of guys who are newer might have strictly something like Onyx or have used it more than Google Earth versus someone like yourself who started a while ago, like Google Earth was it. There was no other resource in terms of online imagery. Um, it was a game changer. So for you, 
what do you appreciate about Onyx or when would you might go to Onyx? I know you mentioned use Google Earth a bunch of the time, but is there a certain instance uh, or certain feature of Onyx that you use that Google Earth can't do for you? I, I think it would probably just be for me the transitioning to boots on the ground. Um, okay. Uh, you know, I can cache an area and have it saved on my phone. And then when I get in that area, if I get turned around or which usually in open country or not dense timber that doesn't happen very often but i can use it to see what's over the next ridge um if i didn't already know um so as far as pre-season scouting or you know pre-scouting from a remote you know from long ways away i i pretty well stick to to google earth uh, steve are you dabbling in onyx or any of that um uh not i think i'll dig uh, i'll bounce back and forth i mean when it comes to really honing in on a spot and picking a spot it's google earth for sure and then onyx i'm looking at um sometimes i'll budget just because the especially on my phone that i have all the unit maps the unit boundaries on there private property access i really like onyx uh topo maps for looking at trails they pop up on there really easily um so I'll, i will bounce back and forth and Especially, like I said, majority of what I'm doing now is on my freaking phone because these devices are so fast now that I use that just a lot. So, gotcha. I think I think it's because I, I use the perspective, like you know, instead of looking from straight above, I'm yeah. always looking at things from the side angle. Yeah. That's where I value Google Earth when with Onyx. It's nice to see the aerial straight above image, but um, I'm always distorting that and you know laying it over on its side so I can see how the country lays out in 3D. Yeah, and I th- I think if you're strictly in Onyx and kind of in that flat view, it's even uh, easier, let's say, to underestimate country. Because I know that I've looked at some stuff in Onyx and go, yeah, let me go check that out in Google Earth and start playing with the perspective and then have a totally different picture of the mountains that you're getting into <laughs> if you're actually heading into that country. Yeah. I know I know one thing I, I was you know, re- referring to my Google Earth eyes being bigger than, you know, you see something like, oh, I got that. And then you get there in person. You're like, holy crap. Actually, I know in Google Earth, I haven't done this in a while, but you can change the uh, change the perspective of how like the scale of the mountains as you're as you are changing your the perspective from where you're viewing it. So you can do it like 1.5 times, and I actually felt like that gave me a much more real perspective when you were zooming zooming in on Google Earth and panning around. Yeah, I, I think Lenny found that, and um, it's in the options menu. Uh, it's I think it's elevation exaggeration for scale. Okay. Anyway, yeah, it it yeah. makes things look way steeper than they actually are, so you can kind of hone in your um, your Google Earth eyes a little bit. <laughs> well, it's, in my opinion, they kind of made it match up with what really was in the field. Like Google Earth, like looking on Google Earth, seemed to kind of flatten everything out. Um, but yeah, maybe I'm just a wuss. <laughs> well, I think it. What, what was our sweet spot? Was it one point two five or something? Just yeah, a bit, it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. When you talk about like what there was before Google Earth, um, I was thinking about this today as far as how, because I got my start in mule deer hunting in like sagebrush country, like where my dad took me, and I always kind of thought, you know, the Nelson brothers, uh, Lenny and all of his brothers were a little bit crazy on some of the, these high country things that they were doing. Um, but eventually, uh, I was just thinking back how, how I progressed from sagebrush to high country stuff. It was literally, you know, influenced from them. And then, um, Mike Eastman's hunting high country mule deer 
um, book. The the most value I got out of that book, I don't want to knock it at all, but was the the black and white images of the terrain and like all these awesome looking Wyoming above tree line ribbon cliff kind of stuff that I would have just never known to look in that country for for deer. So when it came time to like scouring Google Earth, I literally just went to the high the high places in Idaho and I was like, I'm looking for terrain that looks like what I saw in that book. And that's mm. like where I got to start was okay this looks kind of like that let's check this out you know um but back then there was um sorry before google earth there was a website that lenny found called i want to say it was like terra firma or terra something like that but all it had was google or all it had was uh aerial photos and some of them were horrible most of them black and white but you could kind of get a feel for what the country looked like and we used that a little bit in the early days before google earth was really full around for us yeah i know there was a man i can't remember if it was if it was cal topo that was one of the early ones or if that came later but yeah there were some websites that had some some satellite imagery but nothing yeah to the scale of google earth with perspective and all the tools it offered for sure jason do you know is there a website out there you can get live satellite imagery not that i not that i know of okay um, I have used ski resorts, uh, webcams occasionally to see if it's snowing up high, but that's really about it. <laughs> Just launch your own satellite. Yeah. You got the budget. <laughs> there's got, I, I don't know what, there's gotta be a website out there where you can get live, you know, at least within like once a week, they take a photo. You can kind of get in there and look at snow levels. The, the uh, amount of information you could glean from that would be pretty priceless. Cool. So uh, that's a, as you were talking about that Eastman's book and getting into the imagery and what does deer country look like? I mean, that's a thing we want to talk about today. So you've talked about Google Earth as a resource and obviously identifying some roadless areas, looking at where access is, looking at where pressure is. But let's start to dive into the meat of what is good looking deer country? Like, how can you break that down? from satellite imagery obviously as best as possible things can change but we're like things come to mind in terms of food water cover but then things come to mind in terms of specific topographic features be it saddles or changes in elevation or benches like what do you do you zone in on anything first jason Um, are you just kind of evaluating country as a whole for all of those features um, from the big picture and I don't know if there's one specific thing, um, but I mean, for sure, you're you're wanting to be um, above above the timber um, where you can glass. So obviously, more open country. Uh, there's some guys that figure out how to get it done, glass and thicker timber. But I just, for me, it's always open country above timber. Um, and then beyond that, I'm I'm looking for um, kind of high ridges. Um, you know, when you're scouting, the 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 insects are always horrible, and I think those bu- those bucks love to bed up on high windy ridges. So I, I'm always looking for hillsides with a ton of feed, with nearby windswept ridges with cover. So if that's a bench or if that's just like a jagged ridge, um, I'm I'm looking for a place where they can get some food, and when the sun hits the hillside, they're gonna go around the backside of it. And look for a place to get out of the sun and bed down. And if that place is windy and it can keep the bugs off their face and out of their ears, that's just a a solid combination of things there. 
So when you say windy, guys who are new, like how can we judge what the wind might be doing in a certain area or what might contribute to terrain that would allow some wind to move through and kind of keep those bugs off? Man, I, I guess I would just assume if you're on like a little sub ridge that's kind of tucked down, um, it might not be as windy as like a prominent, um, like the highest ridge in the area is obviously going to get some prevailing winds on it all the time. So um, my as far as judging which places are going to be windy, um, sometimes you can maybe look at the trees on that ridge and if the trees are jagged and nasty and you can just see these gnarly old white pines that have just been beaten by weather and storms and that's probably going to be a ridge that's nice and uh, windy for them to bed on. Um, aside from that, judging from Google Earth, I have looked um, looked for landing strips nearby, um, and you know, landing strips if wherever possible, usually in town, of course, but are directional with the way the prevailing winds are. Um, so you can kind of bank off that. Obviously, the winds usually come out of the west. Um, so I like west-facing slopes more than anything for for stocking. Let's dive into food a little bit. So. Part of this we can and can't gauge just from like a Google Earth e-scouting perspective. I would assume from that you're essentially looking for greenery, and obviously this ties into water as well. But I've I've been surprised at some areas I've headed into personally and how green they are versus what they look like on satellite. Like walk us through some of, is that just tough to gauge? Or have you kind of figured out some things to look for in terms of food from google earth and other satellite resources man that is kind of tough to gauge i guess there are times where you're looking for a a certain shade of green that you associate with whatever whatever you call buck brush i know there's like four different bushes that people call buck brush but um for me there's this one type of vegetation that i find in the idaho high country it i mean it's at all sorts of different elevations but from 6,000 to, to the highest stuff we got. But um, for whatever reason, when it comes like late August, they love that brush. And I wish I had a name uh, a name of it. I honestly don't know what it's called, but it does have a darker, richer green than some of the normal bitter brush and kind of sagebrush covered hillsides will have. Um, and of course, like the when you get into the really high stuff and you just have green, grassy hillsides, like some of the stuff Steve and I hunted in Wyoming, it just all looks incredibly green. So I'd like to say you could look at the color and gauge it, but it really is a, a thing where it, it you need boots on the ground or maybe some Google Earth images images that someone's posted. Um, every now and then you'll you know, obviously find a picture on there you can click on and it'll show an image that someone's tied to that area. Um, and you can kind of get a feel for what the vegetation is there. Um, but that's a pretty tough one to just do a hundred percent from Google earth. Okay. So you're looking above tree line, looking for green. Obviously you can also get into some shoots and mixed terrain, help us narrow down, like at least from your perspective. And I know that this ties in with getting boots on the ground, but if you're say going to a new state for you, Jason, and, and you're relying at least in this first stage on these digital resources, like, what else are you looking at to term to determine a place you want to narrow in on? Like, is, are you looking for buck country? Or are you, on one hand, also just looking for 
a good vantage point for yourself to then be able to cover more ground, whether with boots or or optics, once you're in that country. Like if you're going into a new unit, looking at an area, what other decisions are you making that you want to check out with boots on the ground? Uh, the, the bulk of what I'm doing is looking for glassing points. I, um, To me, I think the more time you can spend behind the glass, the better. So if you're, if you're wasting a bunch of time moving from point to point, um, I'd just rather be nestled in behind the glass. So that's the bulk of what I'm doing is looking for a, um obvious point that I can glass into numerous places. And then I'll, I, I figure that, I mean, you can look at a hillside and go, I think there might be bucks there, but you're really never going to know until you get boots on the ground. So that's a, I wish I had a better way to answer that. I'm, really looking for how to cover the terrain in person more than I am saying this hillside is, is bucky or that bench is bucky or, or whatever, you know, it, um, cause I mean, I've, you found, or I found deer in all sorts of places on, on North slopes, on West facing slopes. I mean, in, in just stupid, obvious places bedded out in the sun, there's, um, there's no rhyme or reason as to where, I think I'm going to find one every time. I know that's not probably the answer you're looking for. Um, Steve, do you think you, in all the places we've hunted, like in Idaho, could you narrow down one feature of a Bucky area? Yeah. I mean, I think you've always had a knack for picking spots that, that I would just zoom right over. I think I'm, I have a really bad habit of getting on Google earth and looking very macro at, country i'm looking for like really big stuff and i think you zoom more in or paying more attention to a few more details because you'll send me a spot and you're like i think this looks like a really good spot a buck would live and it's like literally a hundred yard circle and i'm like or maybe it's a, a quarter mile circle and then i'm looking at like hey let's go check out this drainage that's eight miles long you know um, <laughs> <laughs> like i think there's a bug that lives somewhere in there um but yeah no th- i think as you were saying that, I was remembering where, where Lenny killed his big buck, and um, it was something about that country just said Bucky to me, and I knew there was bucks that lived there, and it took three years of us scouting it to finally figure out where they lived. It was a really area that laid out funky, and you couldn't glass all all of it at once. It wasn't this nice big open basin, and it's like, I don't know what it was. That, I think it was just the feed and and the remoteness and there's no access to it and you just knew some bucks had to live there but it, it just took a while to figure out where they were uh yeah i guess that's it yeah. there, there's some stuff with that where once you figured it out it's it was kind of like it was obvious and you yeah. couldn't believe that like how did we not line that up um i guess what i'm saying is when you realize that okay they feed here they bed here there's water here and like where it seems like where you can find those elevations are all because I don't think deer like going up and down the hills. If they can, you know, they're just like us. If they can side hill from a, fe- a feeding area into a bedding area and there's water nearby, uh, that, that's going to definitely seem like a, a money spot to check. Um, and obviously, high water sources are always huge. If, you know, the highest water source you can find on the mountain, that is the first place I'd start because um, they're not, you know, extremely dependent on water you know daily like an elk is of course but they're going to want to get water you know every few days if they're not getting a bunch from their their feed 
What do you look at in terms of identifying bedding areas when you're looking digitally? I'm looking for a small patch of timber high on the mountain, not like a big cluster of trees, but like sometimes as few as like three trees or, you know, just any place they can get out of the sun, but still see everything around them. So they're not going to go into a big thicket. I mean, they will, but I think they'd prefer to be in a small group of trees but they still have a very good sense of what's moving around them versus diving into some dense timber like um, like elk will. And, of course, if that, if that ribbon of timber is up on a windy ridge, even better. Yeah, that's making sense. Like, so an example, uh, last fall, um, Sadie, my fiance, she drew an early archery deer hunt, um, started August 15th, and it's kind of, it was new country to me. Um, there was a mix of, you know, alpine, firs, mahogany, juniper. It had everything as far as diversity. And the problem that we had was, for one, there was large groups of bachelor bucks, um, like 15 or more in some cases, which made that made stalking really hard. But when they'd go to bed, instead of going and finding those couple trees way up high and just getting underneath one of those trees, they'd dive down into thick mahogany or into these big clusters of firs, and I would have no idea where they went. Um, I know they're in there, but I have no idea how to stalk them. It's that whole stalking blind thing where, you know, you can triple your odds if you know the exact tree that he's bedded underneath versus walking into a, a cluster of trees and having no idea where they're at. So that was really frustrating on that hunt. They kind of behaved like elk. They were out on an open hillside first thing, and then they dove into this thick stuff, and it was it was impossible to narrow down where they were at. Yeah. Stepping back to water real quick, Jason, do you feel like, how are you identifying that Google earth? Are you looking at greenery and like certain patterns of that and going, well, clearly there's some water flowing here. Are you pulling in topo to look for streams on the maps or at least intermittent streams? How are you identifying water for, especially as high as you can get, right? Yeah. I, um, obviously on Google Earth, a lot of times you'll see um, the bottom of a drainage is green until late. You, know, you can mess with that historical imagery. And when you get into uh, July and August pictures, if you're lucky enough to have a July and August picture um, on that particular chunk of Google Earth, and it's still green there, you pretty safe bet that there's going to be water there come hunting season. Um, another thing I've done, and Steve, I don't know if you've ever looked at the the high seep up in a, a place we call Sausage Canyon. There's a really high <laughs> seep that kind of comes out of the hillside. Yeah. You would never you would never know there's water there um, just because the pictures are terrible and it's it's on a steep north face. But if you look at the game trails that go to that water or that seep, there's just like this spider web of game trails that are just hammering it. And you're like, oh, well, obviously critters are going there for water. And it's, I mean... It's, it's right there in the game trails, but you have to zoom in pretty tight to see that. So I think you just kind of dive into Google Earth as deep as you can and, and go, okay, I'm going to zoom in as tight as I can and see if I can spot game trails go into this water hole that look like it's being used a lot. And then, of course, mess with the historical imagery and see if you can time your, you know, the calendar and, and make sure there's water in there in the hot seasons. Cause if it's hot, if there's water in there in August, I'm sure there's going to be water in September. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, 
glassing spots, you mentioned that's one of the primary things you're looking at for this digital scouting is not just buck country, but where can you actually get in there and cover ground with optics? So especially for beginners, like walk us through what is a good glassing spot? It's Is it just getting as high as you can? I mean, you mentioned obviously a vantage point where you can hopefully move with relative ease and get into a few different basins, but like maybe put it this way, like what's an ideal glassing spot for you? Um, thinking through direction, elevation, yeah, distance, all that stuff. What is a good glassing spot? Well, the common denominator probably is the highest point um, in the area where you can see the most. Um, prefer to be glassing with the sun on my back if I can, just because everything looks so much, just looks glassing in the sun is miserable. Um, you can miss a lot of stuff doing that. Distances, I, I do like to measure, you know, from my glassing point. I'll use the little measure tool on Google Earth and see what kind of distances I'm going to be glassing to know if uh, it's pretty easy to look at a hillside and go, oh, I can see that hillside. Then you measure it and it's like four miles and you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe I can spot something if the sun is just right, but probably not, you know. What's um, a preferred distance? Oh, I would or say really? for sure under two miles, but um, – mile and a half would probably be on the long side for spot and scope. Um, yeah. I, if it's over two miles, I, it's makes it pretty damn tough. Okay. So if you're, yeah, you, you find your glass of appointment on Google earth and then you go, okay, the hillside's two plus miles and you're like, yeah, I better relook at that or find a new way to glass the country. Yeah. And you know, sometimes that'll lead you to a different glassing point. You're like, I really want to look at that hillside cause I think it looks good, but I don't think I can see it from this point, so I better bump down to this next glassing point, which may not be as good, but um, maybe I can spin around and look 360 from that lower point. I, I have a couple spots where my glassing point is, isn't the highest point. It's like the like a low knob in the middle of a canyon, and I can glass on all sides just from that one point. Um, so it's not always the highest peak, but uh, typically if you're trying to look above tree line, that's that's where it's going to be approaching a glassing spot so like you find this ideal spot how do you look at an approach are you ever i mean ideally you're coming in from low and the bucks are high it's not too big of a concern but what else goes into that if maybe the approach is kind of up and through a saddle something like that in terms of identifying glassing points but also making sure that you're not tromping through good country yeah i mean there is some consideration there i I have tried to avoid certain areas um that you know you don't want to stomp through and blow up the area if you're going to be glassing it later on. So I, I think that's just use the same kind of caution you would if if you were you know going to be hunting there. Um, try not to stomp through. I, that's yeah, kind of a just use common sense there. I, I don't really know if I. It just is all um, depends on how the train lays out. Um, I, I would prefer to move north into a country so I consistently have the sun at my back, but that might be a, you know, above 45th parallel kind of thing. If you're further down South in Colorado, maybe that's not a big, big a deal. I would, I would say as a general rule, we aren't extremely paranoid anal when you're a pro. I mean, if, you know, if that hillside's a mile away, it's not like you're belly crawling over the, over the ridge to get to your glassing point. Right. But we're, we're conscious when we're out there hunting of, of what's going on and, and sometimes, um, pretty relaxed, but I, I can't think of too many times we've ever been busted or that's cost us anything. 
Yeah. You just feel like you have enough distance. Um, yeah. Where you don't have to be too concerned. Yeah. And I, I'd agree with that. Like the other thing is it's summertime. The deer are pretty docile. They don't, if they see a person, I mean, they see backpackers and motorcycle guys and horseback people and they don't blow out. I mean, I don't think I've ever busted up a deer or blown them out and then never found them again because of that. I think you can always still turn them up, but, but you do want to consider how you're going to hunt it when you're scouting it. Like, cause you obviously don't want to blow them out during hunting season. Yeah. What other what other digital resources are like pre-scouting, scouting, identifying country? Like, do you feel like you're missing anything? Or if you think through part of your process of picking out areas or new areas, and I know this is difficult because we've talked, Jason, of you have so much boots on the ground experience that you're not always going to new country, you know, and just relying on this pre-scouting piece uh, from home and from your computer. But Anything else stand out of parts of your process, things we might be missing to consider? Um, on the digital scouting side of it, I think it's pretty easy to um, kind of have a narrow focus on mule deer and forget that there might be like an early an early elk hunt or you know some other hunt that's going to like totally screw you up that you just didn't even realize until you get in there. So that's that's definitely a consideration as far as when it comes to hunting, um, what you're going to expect. Um, I have had a ton of, um, scouting trips and hunting seasons be ruined by, um, domestic sheep. Um, I wish there was a way to track <laughs> how sheep herders move sheep through <laughs> land cause they can just annihilate a place. Um, yeah, I can't really think of anything else beyond that. I, I would love to get it to where they got sheep out of out of our high country stuff because um, they'll just, I mean, come through and they'll eat all the feed and the deer will move somewhere else. And then I don't know if I've ever successfully relocated a buck after sheep have moved through. They just usually leave and I never relocated them. So it's pretty frustrating. I wonder if that's uh, in all states, you know, does Colorado, Utah, Wyoming have that same issue or is that just an Idaho deal? I know it happened in Wyoming when 14, when you and I had the tag, uh, one of the, the first places I scouted, um, the one hillside I wanted to actually, a friend of mine said, I would look at this mountain and I was near that mountain and it was just covered in sheep. And I didn't, I ended up just turning around going the other direction cause I just knew I wouldn't see anything in there. Huh. Interesting. I don't know what time they move them out of those mountains, but, um, usually by hunting season, of course they're gone, but it definitely changes the habitat and, and the behavior of what the bucks are going to do. Yeah. yeah. So Jason is part of the series, you know, we've talked about scouting and obviously digital scouting. We're going to continue on and talk in the series about locating in terms of boots on the ground and kind of what to do when you're arriving to an area and picking apart country and glassing strategies and et cetera. We're going to talk about, the details, the nitty gritty on making stocks and what bucks are approachable and all those considerations. We're going to talk about shooting opportunities. So like just real quick, kind of a little lightning round, if you will, if I throw out those different topics, like what's the first thing that comes to mind if I say boots on the ground, locating deer? <laughs> um, just first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, have a plan and execute it. Have a planned glassing point. Be there before daylight. Um, can't stress that enough. And um, yeah, have a, oh, and the other things. Have a have a plan B for boots on the ground. If you get up there and there's 
a bunch of people at your trailhead and have somewhere else you want to go Got for, for your first trip into the country and then be looking for your next, you know, looking for where you're going to go the next weekend. Yeah. First thing that comes to mind when you talk about stalking mule deer and making that approach. Um, the, the Lenny rule, get, get close and let them make the mistake. So get within bow range and don't force it and have patience if the wind's right. And then just wait them out, let them get up and stretch your legs and make the mistake. And then after, uh, some time putting in the scouting, making the approach, probably sitting there for a while, waiting for them to make a mistake. Shooting opportunity comes first thing that comes to mind for shooting, especially let's say like high country archery on mule deer. Decide ahead of time if you're going to try to shoot them in their bed, wait for them to get up and, sh- and draw what, what point you're going to draw. Um, or if you're going to let them get up, stretch their legs, you know, yawn, do whatever they do, and then draw. Have that figured out before the moment comes because when it does, um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of black out sometimes. I don't remember what the hell went through my head, what pin I wanted to pick. You know, all that stuff just kind of goes out the window sometimes when it when it gets down because you've been sitting there for hours waiting for a buck to get up or whatever the case may be have some forethought before it all goes down perfect i was thinking you're gonna see if you miss the first time you'll have a second chance but (laughs) i wish is what i should (laughs) which is what i should have said but i think me blacking out and losing my whole train of thought is the reason i miss on the first shot always and kill them on the second shot (laughs) how many times have you done that three times on three three days yeah yeah, yeah, I knew it'd been more than like a time or two. So yeah, that's first fun. shots just testing for windage and you know all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, that's a wrap, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you hit that subscribe button and come back for more on this series of how to hunt mule deer. If you have a question for this series or for anything else, send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Talk to you soon.